Welcome to the weekly podcast of Science and the City, the public gateway to the New York Academy of Sciences, online at scienceandthecity.org. Today is Friday, December 11th, 2009. I'm Alana celebrated a big birthday when Charles Darwin's The Origin of Species turned 150 years old. In addition to cake and champagne, we brought together three renowned scientists to talk about how Darwin has influenced the world of science. This week, anthropologist Terence Deacon, psychologist Paul Ekman, and Nobel laureate and neurobiologist Gerald Edelman tell you how Darwin has changed their personal careers, as well as the field of science they've spent their lives researching, from language to emotion and consciousness. Science in the City has put a little something together for you for the new year. Five brilliant women scientists talking about subjects that interest women and the people who love them. We're calling it our Girls' Night Out series, because we all know science could use a lot more women. Helen Fisher kicks off the series on January 5th with her take on the science of love and whom we choose. Then we've got topics from food to beauty to our changing ecosystem. Act fast, and you can take advantage of our season tickets package. Buy tickets to all five events and get a free membership to the New York Academy of Sciences, a savings of over $100. And hey, I gotta say, if you're one of those last-minute shoppers, it wouldn't make a bad holiday gift either. Find all you need to know about Girls' Night Out online at www.nyas.org slash girlsnightout. Question. If Charles Darwin was alive today, what do you think he'd say? I think he would have been particularly disturbed by the fact that the challenge that the evolutionary theory posed to religious orthodoxy is still alive today, 150 years later. I think he would have been very disturbed to know that. I'm Terence Deacon. I'm a University of California Berkeley professor of anthropology and neuroscience. I study uh, the evolution of the brain, the evolution of language, and the evolution of human mentality in general. What did Darwin know about language? Interestingly enough, the theory of evolution was probably first developed linguistically, a generation before Darwin's time, people looking at the origins of European languages and using differences in sound and word structure to get a sense of how languages changed over time. As a result, they had already put together what amounts to a kind of phylogeny of languages tracing back to ancient languages, especially for German where it began. In fact, the uh, Grimm brothers who were associated with the Grimm's fairy tales, uh, they were collecting fairy tales in part to get information about the languages that different people spoke. So there was a good deal known and in fact probably, although it doesn't come up in any of Darwin's comments, probably had something to do with Darwin's thinking. He didn't really write about the origins of language uh, in The Origin of Species, but he wrote considerably about it, however, in The Descent of Man and a Selection in Relation to Sex. Uh, Interestingly enough, uh, language was a problem for him, and language was a problem uh, for his theory, in part because his co-discoverer, Alfred Russell Wallace, argued that Uh, language could not have evolved by natural selection, even though Wallace was a more strict Darwinian in some sense than Darwin himself. And as a result, Darwin had to come up with another explanation. His explanation was sexual selection. Uh, 
the kind of selection that produces exotic peacock tails and antlers and uh, antelopes and, and deer driving extreme traits uh, because language is an extreme trait. So the book on the descent of man focuses on sexual selection largely and surprisingly for many modern readers because he thinks this is how you're going to explain a lot of the features that make human beings different. What do we know about language today? There are two sides to the story. First of all, people divide language research into primarily grammar and syntax on the one hand and the vocabulary or semantics on the other hand. And there's been a significant argument about the origins of syntax and grammar because it's so complex. And the argument is that it couldn't just sort of happen spontaneously and because no other species spontaneously pick it up, we are generally convinced that something special happened to the human brain. Uh, I happen to think that the first thing that happened was we became capable of thinking symbolically, that is, using arbitrary forms of reference uh, to communicate about things in the world. But to do that, we need to have conventions, systems of meaning, and that limits the way we can combine things in language, which I think has generated over the course of time changes in grammar and syntax, but also changes in our brain to make us better able to learn language. Now, the classic theory that is still holding sway to some extent is, from linguists' point of view at least, is that somehow we have a genetic predisposition for grammar and syntax. In fact, a kind of mentalese, a language that already has in our brains grammar and syntax that we've inherited. I actually don't think that's the case. I think that what we have is some elaborate learning biases that help us acquire language, uh, but that in fact it's not built in like a sort of... uh, pre-programmed assembly for building a particular language set. Now, the reason I think that it's important to think this way is that I think something like language has been evolving for close to two million years in our species. If that's true, um, we've been significantly impacted by language in the following sense. I think of language sort of like you think about a beaver dam. It's something that the species produces in its world, but it becomes an environment. It becomes like the natural world, and it imposes demands on us. The beaver dam that beavers have built over the course of generations has imposed aquatic demands on beavers, and they've become more and more aquatic over time. I think the symbolic world that we've constructed, our culture and our language, have imposed cognitive demands that force us to be better able to acquire this and pass it on. As a result, I think that we've developed lots of different learning biases to make this possible. But as a result, I think that we are also very different cognitively than other species. It's not just that we're an ape with a language possibility. It's that our whole style of learning and thinking about things, our emotions, what we find attractive, what we find memorable, I think has been changed to make this possible. So, for example, we have things like art Uh, religion, music, and so on, uh, very unusual features uh, compared to any other species. I think these are partly a reflection of this special set of adaptations, these learning biases that we now reflect. How has Darwin affected your work? Probably one of the negative influences is that Darwin took a very long time to publish The Origin of Species. He really came upon the crucial insights about 1838. So it takes over 20 years for him to finally get it out. In fact, he has to be forced out because Alfred Russell Wallace is coming up with a parallel theory. I have the same problem in some ways. One wants to be just right. One wants to get all the details down. 
but sometimes it slows you down. That's, I think, one of the disadvantages. Darwin had one advantage over the rest of us these days. That is, he was a man of leisure, a man that didn't have to hold down a job. And it's good because he wasn't a very healthy man through much of his life. But as a result, he could collect and collect and collect and organize his thoughts and his papers and spend lots of time in correspondence with people getting new data for his theory. We don't have that luxury today. In some sense, we're forced to rush to press almost before we should. Darwin did not do that, and I think it's to his credit to some extent that he held back as long as he did. Uh, but it's a danger for modern scientists. If you could ask Darwin anything. One of the things I find interesting about his theory is that it really doesn't require that you know how the mechanisms work. It doesn't require that you know how reproduction works. It doesn't require that you know how development works. It doesn't require that you know how variation works. It doesn't depend on whether you know how inheritance works. It just was based upon his observation of life and seeing that there was all of these features out there. Organisms developed, they inherited traits, and so on. Without knowing that, he came up with an abstract theory to some extent. His theory is in some ways just statistics. And as a result, it's a very robust theory. As we've discovered new mechanisms, as we've understood genes, as we've understood development, as we've tried to put them all together, it hasn't changed the fundamental core. In one sense, I was very interested in why it took him so long to recover this idea. But in fact, it's taken Western science a very long time to come up with this idea, if you think about it. And uh, in part, I'm curious. Uh, as to what he would say today, knowing all of these details that we have, that we've accumulated, that he didn't know, would he find his theory still adequate? Would he feel comfortable and happy with what he accomplished? I suspect he would. My name is Paul Ekman, and I'm a professor emeritus at the University of California Medical School in San Francisco. I'm a professor of psychology. I've been studying emotion, expression, and deception for half a century. What did Darwin think about compassion? Desmond Moore, who wrote the most recent biography of Darwin, and they said Darwin's least known great book is The Descent of Man. And in two chapters of that book, chapters three and four, Darwin writes about compassion and morality, and he reveals a view that is in total contradiction to how what people generally think, not just the general public, but even most scientists think about Darwin's views on these matters. Darwin is interpreted generally as the person who sort of provides the justification for a kind of dog-eat-dog, -dog, individualistic, selfish uh, view of humanity which is totally wrong. Survival of the fittest is not his phrase, that's Herbert Spencer's. Darwin was a abolitionist, a fervent abolitionist. He was an extremely moral person. And in his view, as expressed in those two chapters, the highest moral virtue is to be concerned about the welfare, not just of all human beings, but all living beings. It is really only the Buddhists and the Jains, a particular strand of Hinduism, who embrace that position. Christianity, Judaism, and Islam 
embrace humanity, but you can do anything you want to other animals. Darwin thought that was the greatest virtue there was. And he also thought that natural selection would give an advantage to those societies which favored altruism because he said that survival requires cooperation and people looking after each other and the societies that embrace those principles should have more offspring that survive. And fortunately, that doesn't seem to be the case. We do not live in a world of altruists. Darwin said that when we see another person suffer, it makes us suffer, and we act to reduce the other person's suffering in order to reduce our own. I call that emotional resonance. What do we know about emotional resonance today? It's clear that burnout, something that occurs for people who spend their lives working with those who are experiencing a lot of suffering, like probably the prototypic person is the nurse who works on a children's oncology ward, cancer ward. Burnout is because you're resonating with overload. You're seeing so much suffering so many hours of every day that it overwhelms you. PTSD may well also result from an overwhelm of resonance to witnessing the suffering of your friends and uh, teammates. But there are some people who aren't touched at all. Now, what I'll argue in my talk tonight is that familial compassion is a given by nature. We have the longest period of infantile dependence to any species. It has many benefits in terms of learning, but it has a very high cost. Somebody needs to take care of you or you're through. And parents, particularly mothers, don't have to learn it. It's an aberration if they wouldn't sacrifice their life for their offspring. But what about their cousins? What about their neighbors? What about total strangers? That's not built in. Except in some people. I mean, think of Doctors Without Borders. Those are male and female, the mothers to total strangers. They're putting their whole life to the service of others who they don't know. Why is it there in them and not in everyone? Do we have any ideas? I'm actually about to do a study using the archives on the Minnesota study of identical twins reared apart because they didn't grow up in the same family, but they have the same genes. And what I expect to find is that if one identical twin has led a compassionate life, so will the other. And fraternal twins, I don't expect to find the association. Now, the Dalai Lama disagrees with me completely He believes it's karma. It is your previous life that determines whether you'll be compassionate. I told him, when I met with him in September in Vancouver, that karma and reincarnation is a really clever metaphor, 2,600 years old, for the fact that, unlike what we thought in this country for hundreds of years, we don't come into the world as blank slates. We are influenced by our past. 
but it's not the past lives of our ancestors, it's our genes. And now we know, and he totally disagrees. He says, when you do that study of identical twins, you'll find nothing because it's karma. It has nothing to do with their genes. It's a nice test of the difference between a Buddhist and a Western scientific approach. What's something you think most people don't know about Charles Darwin? You know, he had 10 children, and he was a dedicated father, and they would climb all over him and hang on to the hair on his chest and call him the bear. We really don't think of him as being that kind of a very informal guy, but he was. He was a very uh, passionate, extroverted, sociable person in terms of his family life. He was a recluse other than that, partly because of his dedication to his work and partly because in his travels around the world he picked up some terrible tropical diseases that plagued him enormously his entire life afterwards. Some people have interpreted them as psychosomatic, although you know that phrase is dying out now that we recognize that most of the things we thought were psychosomatic really have a biological basis. And I believe that uh, the evidence supports the idea that Darwin really suffered from some terrible intestinal disorders that he picked up, as you easily can. I mean, in some of the more obscure places of the world, nobody goes there. There's some terrible diseases you can encounter. If you could tell Darwin anything. Thank you very much for your brilliant insight and your more than insight, your documentation. You were willing to spend the time to gather the evidence to make this more than an idea to make it overwhelming and to change forever how we think about life. My name is Gerald Edelman. I am a, a scientist. I used to be a musician of some sorts, but I presently am the director of the Neurosciences Institute in La Jolla and the head of the Department of Neurobiology at the Scripps Research Institute in La Jolla. When was the first time you encountered the origin of species? When I was taking care of my father, who was a general practitioner, taking care of my father's office, there was a copy of it next to some salacious text that I won't mention on your program. And so I became aware of it. There was also something called the Harvard Classics, which had references of this kind. I can't say at that age, which was in the early teens, that I actually read it. I read in it. What did Darwin know about consciousness? Well, there are not going to be some complex or even simple answers to that question because he was interested in the evolution of the mind and the brain but I don't believe that he sort of focused down on the word consciousness and all that it entails however he was certainly a person as you'll hear from my lecture who was extremely concerned with the fact that what we now call consciousness arose by natural selection which is his great theory how has the idea of consciousness evolved since Darwin's time? Let's say that consciousness, first of all, is not a singly defined word. It involves a lot of properties. Perhaps the most important thing about it is this. You know exactly what it is. It is what you lose when you fall into a deep, dreamless slumber and what you regain when you wake up. 
And if, for example, you were talking to an anesthesiologist, he would say to you at a certain point, we're going to have to say goodbye to each other for a while, and then bingo, you're out. And when you wake up, you don't remember what actually happened in the intervening. So you know in that implicit sense the private experience of consciousness, right? However, if you want to describe it from a third-person point of view, from the outside, consciousness is, first of all, a process. It's not a thing. And it is the sense you have of a unitary scene involving all of your senses, your memories, and what have you. It's highly integrated because you can't, for example, be conscious just of this microphone and not of me, or the hiss in the background, etc., or the smell of this room, or whatever. Is there a smell in this room? In any case, that's several of the properties. A third property is that it is responsible for what philosophers call qualia, that things are red or warm or painful or itchy or whatever, the qualia. And that's the big mystery that the philosophers like to talk about. How could you have a piece of meat, three pounds, like a brain, make give rise to qualia? Finally, it's usually about something, but it doesn't exhaust everything, so attention can modulate consciousness. If you could ask Darwin anything. How do you feel? because he had a very sad life in his later years. If you look at him, you see that. He suffered immensely from an undiagnosed ailment, no treatment of which really prevailed. So I would be most concerned because besides being a genius of a special kind, the greatest observational scientist of all times, he was a charming and decent person, really remarkable person. And so I would think it'd be more important to find out about Charles and how he felt than to go through what the Darwin industry is busy doing right now, tracking every one of his thoughts. We can do that with and without him. But with him, I'm not going to be too secure in saying that by asking him lots of detailed questions, we learn much more than the industry has already produced. The fact is very simple. He's the greatest biologist who ever lived. And... Uh, what I said before is a quote from Theodosius Dobzhansky, no longer with us, who said nothing in biology really matters except in the light of evolution. Thanks for listening this week. Science in the City is a non-profit program of the New York Academy of Sciences. This means we need your continued support to keep bringing you this weekly podcast series, as well as the rest of our Science in the City program, like the 2010 Girls' Night Out event series and our website. For more information on Academy membership and to support Science in the City today, log on to scienceandthecity.org slash donate. As always, we would love your feedback. Send an email to scienceinthecity at nyas.org or leave us a voicemail at 212-298-8654. See you next week.